Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Some of you already have your Bibles turned there. Awesome. And if you would stand with me as we read our text this morning. First Corinthians chapter seven, beginning in verse one. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You may be seated. Up until this point in our study, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with and addressing some major sin issues that were reported to him, um, things that were happening in the church, and we're not going to go through all of them in detail, but in the first 11 weeks, we've, we've gone through this study in 11 weeks so far, we have seen Paul address uh, divisions in the church, personality cults were happening. The church in Corinth was like, I like this pastor more than I like this pastor, and they had fan clubs, and we saw the differences between God's wisdom and the foolishness of this world. We saw the differences between carnal wisdom and spiritual wisdom, and that there's a big difference there. And and then we saw, I believe in chapter 3, again, Paul addressed them on divisions in the church, and he challenged the church to keep their eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep, don't look to man. Stop looking to, to a personality. Stop to looking to man. Look to God. And, and then we saw the digression, though, of the church. The church was acting more like the unbelievers in Corinth rather than the bought and paid for children of God. And to top it all off, there was sexual immorality in the church. So much so that they were acting in ways that the, the unbelieving Corinthian world weren't, weren't even acting in. And Paul just reminded them and told them and challenged them, take sin seriously, like stop it. Flee sexual immorality because they were using the grace of God and they were abusing it as a license to sin. Oh, we're saved. Oh, we're, we're, you know, we're made new by Jesus and Jesus alone. And and our standing before God is, is solely upon what Jesus did for us. And they were right in that, but they didn't stop there. They said, therefore, we can do whatever the heck we want to do because we're secure in Jesus. They missed the heart of grace. And Paul told them again, mourn over your sin. Take it serious. But then last week, flee, run away from sexual immorality. Sexual sin. But here in chapter 7, Paul switches gears a bit. And he addresses um, 
this section, he directs his attention, I, I should say, towards some questions that the church had written to him about, about several subjects. We, and we have here this morning singleness and marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. In chapter 8, there's food offered to idols. You know, is this a sin? Is it not a sin? It's a gray issue. Uh, chapter 12, there's spiritual gifts. Uh, chapter 15, the resurrection of the dead. A missionary offering that was collected for the Jews in 1 Corinthians 16. But this morning, we're going to look at the subject of singleness and marriage. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, as we study 1 Corinthians 7, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul is dealing with a church that is steeped in sexual sin. If you're just joining us, this is your first time, you, ne you need to know that. This church is steeped in sexual sin and confusion. The other thing to keep in mind is that Paul is responding here to direct, specific questions that this church had for him. So the first six chapters we saw that Paul was just addressing. Someone snitched on the church of Corinth, okay? Someone's like, someone from the house of Chloe comes to Paul and says, God, did, you, did you hear about the guy with the stepmom? Like, this is not good. And, you know, Paul, Paul's just land blasting them, right? There's, there's issues going on in the church of Corinth. But then it seems as if the church of, in Corinth wrote to Paul at some point with specific questions. So for chapters one through six is really Paul just addressing the report that he heard about this church. And then seven through the rest of the, um, the, rest of the book, it's really him responding to specific questions. Because of that, we have to note that Paul is not writing a complete theological statement concerning these issues. Again, he's responding to specific questions about their specific problems that they had going on in their lives and in the church. And in this chapter, we really have to um, see it through the lens of the rest of Scripture. It's really meant to complement the rest of Scripture, in which Paul wrote about, in which even Jesus himself talked about in the subject of marriage, specifically in Matthew chapter 19. But as we've been seeing, all the sexual immorality, Paul's calling them out, um, but here's what's going on in the church right now. There's this sect in the church um, that had thought that, okay, since sex, you know, outside of marriage makes you less holy, makes you less spiritual. Um, I understand that. That makes logical sense. Their next set of reasoning was, okay, then not having sex within marriage, therefore must make you really spiritual and really holy. Like that's the type of thinking that they had. And what was happening here is that you had a lot of people in the, in the church who were, who were going one way towards sexual immorality, abusing the grace of God. And then you had the other um, end of the spectrum, if you will, that they were overreacting to that and saying, no, sex is bad altogether. We should just refrain from it altogether, even if you're married. So there's this confusion in this church, to say the least, about sex, singleness, and marriage. Look at verse 1. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, <clears throat> and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, Again, Paul is responding here to their confusion over sex. Should they uh, abstain from it altogether? Should they indulge in it? And here he starts in verse 1 by putting his stamp of approval on singleness and celibacy. Notice that. He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that term, that phrase, to touch a woman, is a common Jewish uh, euphemism for sexual intercourse. In other words, Paul is saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or another way of looking at it, it is good for a man to be celibate and single. And we see this phrase used throughout Scripture in Genesis 20, verse 6, when, when the Lord spoke to Abimelech and he says this, as I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. And that her is, is Abraham's wife, Sarah. Remember, they, they came, they lied to Abimelech, said, hey, she's my sister. And the Lord protected Abimelech that he couldn't touch her. He, wouldn't, he couldn't have her. Ruth 2.9, Boaz there, we see, protected Ruth, telling her, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. 
Proverbs 6, 29, Solomon wrote, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touched her will not go unpunished. Again, speaking of sexual intercourse. But here, Paul uses it to state that it is a good thing for Christians not to have sexual relations and that it was a good thing for them to remain single and unmarried. Now, Hear me out. You're like, whoa, <laughs> I feel like Paul's missing something here. Um, yeah, at face value, if you were to just say, all right, we are done here. Um, you're like, what about Genesis? Like, what about God's heart for marriage? Like, this goes all the way back, and you students of the Bible, you know, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the very beginning. Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. You guys are students of the Bible. You're like, but Paul, you're saying that it's a good thing for a man to be alone, like in that relationship. But understand this, Paul is not saying that singleness is the only good condition or that marriage is any way wrong or inferior to being single. I think of John MacArthur, he wrote this, spirituality is not determined by marital status. So one is not greater than the other. But what Paul is saying is that singleness as long as a person can remain celibate and sexually pure, it can be an amazing thing. And we'll talk, about, we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But then he goes on to say in verse 2 that there can be a problem in it as well. <clears throat> as you might know, i got to take a drink of water. Sorry, my mouth is like dry. As you know, God has built into all of us a sexual drive. He's built into all of us a sexual desire. And with that sex drive can come temptation, especially for those who are single and especially for those who are living in a sexually charged city and society like Corinth and like Portland. <laughs> Remember we said that in, on any given day in Corinth, there was a thousand temple prostitutes walking the streets, ready to enslave anyone and everyone. And so it was, again, a sexually charged, sexually immoral society where sex was a thing that was praised, it was flaunted, it was exalted. And don't we see that here in 2022 in Portland, in the West? But because of these pressures, the sexual drive of ours can be a problem. And for that reason, I'm going to read it one more time. Paul says in verse 2, because of, of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, it's important to notice, though, what Paul is not saying. And I want you to know this. Paul is not saying, and nor should it ever be interpreted, that marriage is to be viewed as God's escape valve for the sex drive. That is not what Paul, or nor God, is saying through Paul concerning sex and marriage. Paul is not suggesting that Christians go out and find another Christian to marry only to keep them from getting into sexual sin. That's not what he's saying. Listen, Paul had a much higher view of marriage than that. And we see that in Ephesians 5, don't we? I'm going to read Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, he says in verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." Here, Paul is saying that marriage is much more than just a sexual release or a sexual fulfillment. But marriage, again, is so much more. It, he's saying it is a picture of Christ and the church. Did you know that our marriages, if you're here today, you're married, you are to, your marriage is to represent Christ's love for the church? 
And Paul, again, has, he has a high view of marriage. And here he, can, he is stressing just the reality that sexual temptation can come with being single. But he also acknowledges that there is a legitimate outlet in marriage for our sexual desires and needs. That is also the case. But it's not the only purpose. Now, the Bible gives us numerous reasons for marriage. Uh, you might ask, like, well, well, why did God intend marriage? And I, and I actually stole these four points uh, from a Bible commentator because, one, they all started with P, and I thought that was really clever. Um, but I, I, it just really resonated with my heart. So first, if you're taking notes, that marriage is for uh, procreation. And we learn that in Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them, 128. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's intentions for Adam and Eve, for mankind, was to reproduce. Now, let me pause before I move on to the second point. Because that is to say, um, it's, he's not saying that you must have kids in order to have a legitimate marriage. Okay, I want you to know that. Because some people, uh, maybe you're here this morning, you're not able to have children. If that's you, you and your spouse cannot have children for whatever reason, don't worry. <laughs> you have a legitimate marriage. Procreation is not the only reason to marry, but it is a biblical reason to marry. Does that make sense? Secondly, marriage is for pleasure. Proverbs speaks of a man being exhilarated always with the wife of his youth. Let me read this. Um, Proverbs 5, without blushing. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. And then you come to the Song of Solomon. <laughs> And that book centers, like the main theme around the Song of Solomon is the physical attraction and physical pleasure of marital love. And it's a radical book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it maybe with your spouse. But it'll make you blush and you'll, you'll instantly realize why Pastor Doug never taught, about it, taught on, on Song of Solomon in 30 years. So marriage is for pleasure. But thirdly, marriage is also a partnership. We find in Genesis 2 that that woman was created for man to be a suitable helper. And that speaks of, of partnership, but it also speaks of friendship. There's a companionship there, that we do this thing together in life. And then fourthly, marriage, and this is not an exhaustive list, please know that. Marriage is for purity. It protects from sexual immorality by meeting the physical needs for enjoyment. And that is what Paul is alluding to here. It's just one of the purposes of marriage. Now, at this point, Paul begins to discuss the sexual relationship between the husband and the wife. Look at verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, I want you to note a couple things here. The first thing that we need to see is that the sexual relationship involves a mutual giving and seeking to, to bless, to enrich, and to satisfy our spouse. It's mutual. We see this in the wording that Paul uses here, that the sexual relationship is a matter of giving and not taking. Paul says to the men, you must fulfill your duty to your wife. In other words, the man is not to view the sexual relationship as a way to get his sexual needs met, but he's to view it as a way to meet the needs of his wife. You know, one of the, the main things that Jesus taught when he you know, was in his earthly ministry here, uh, one of the main things that he taught us was that we are to put others first. It was a basic principle for life. We're to deny ourselves. We're to, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. That if you attempt to save your life, you're going to lose your life. And that a principle, again, it applies to every area of the Christian life. And especially, though, it applies in marriage and in especially in the area of sex and marriage. You see, if you and I just try to meet our own needs, if we're out there seeking only to put our own needs first in our lives, we're missing it. We're missing God's plan and God's design. Not only will we not be satisfied, but we will be unfulfilled in this area and we're gonna find ourselves empty. The only way to find our needs met and for us to be fulfilled is to fulfill the needs of another. To give away your life, Jesus said, and then you'll find it. 
and this principle for the Christian life, but it also can be applied for the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. Again, it is designed not to have our sexual needs met, but to meet the needs of our spouse. Let me ask you, how does your spouse, if you're married this morning, how does your spouse feel loved? Now, I'm, I'm no rocket scientist. You're like, we know. But um, the husbands, listen. The way you feel loved as a husband and a man might not be the same way your wife feels loved as your spouse. Okay, I say this, and when we talk about marriage, I want to have a disclaimer here. I'm not talking um, up here because I feel super qualified. I want you to know that. Um, This week has been a real battle for me, if I can be just completely honest with you when it comes to marriage and, and, and how husbands ought to love their wives. Uh, because for me, just in, in complete transparency, like I have not succeeded in this area over the years very well at all. And my wife can be the first one to tell you that. We were at a pastor's conference this week and um, they, they always try to have a session on, on marriage, marriage and ministry, which I think is a very appropriate. Because in ministry, you can really be, just in life really, you can be really out of balance and, and your priorities aren't, aren't um, always how the Lord would have them. And um, this couple from Calvary Vista was up, the, the pastor and his wife, and they were sharing just their story. And uh, man, Mary and I, we were looking at each other. We're like, this is like our story, you know? And they're a little seasoned. They're more seasoned. And uh, their, their struggles and their frustrations are in their marriage and ministry. And Mary and I were like, oh my gosh, some of the same things you've said, like sure, she said, oh, you said, and the things that he said, I've said, like it's just, it was just kind of crazy. But here's the takeaway that I got from it, is that there's hope. Because they're not in that same spot anymore. And they're sharing it from a perspective of, guys, I've been there. I'm sharing it this morning, guys, I need to be there. And I'm with you in this. So I want you to just know my heart. I'm not, I'm not communicating this morning because I have this figured out. I am learning I'm a, I joke with my wife, I am a slow learner. <laughs> She's, Mary can tell you, he's a slow learner. <laughs> Some things, I just, it takes me a lot longer. We've been married almost 15 years. January will be 15 years. And I've just slowly learned the hard way a lot of things. I'm grateful for my wife. But anyways, how I feel loved and how my wife feels loved are two different ways. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the five love languages. I think it was Gary Chapman. He wrote a book. I'm not endorsing the book. I don't know if I've ever read the book, but I know about the five love languages. And the first one, you have words of affirmation. There's secondly, there's quality time. There's physical touch. There's acts of service. And then there's receiving gifts. And my love language and how I feel loved is not my wife's. She feels loved so differently. And on our marriage throughout the years, I'm trying as a faith, trying to be a faithful husband, love her in how I feel loved, right? Like I'm just, I'm doing it. I'm loving you. And she, this whole time, she's not feeling loved at all. But I'm loving her. (laughs) But am I loving her? How she needs to be loved? Again, I'm slowly learning this. And so Paul is describing a relationship here, listen closely, where both people are taking the initiative. There's a mutual respect. Husbands, love your wife in a way where she feels loved. Not in how you feel loved, but how she feels loved. And wife, you do the same for your husband. Love your husband, not in how you feel loved, but in how he feels loved. And it's in this process of devoting yourself to the enjoyment of your spouse. It is then and there that you see your needs will be met as well in response. A few years ago, we had a a guest speaker come to one of our men's retreats. Uh, He was the the founding pastor of Calvary Fellowship in Seattle. His name was Wayne Taylor. And for those of you men that were at this um, men's retreat, it got got heated pretty quick. And uh, he, he was talking about marriage. And he was talking about just caring for our wives. And he said this pr- very profound thing. Forgive me if this, if this irritates you that I'm going to say it. But he says this, sex starts in the kitchen. <laughs> and he was addressing men. This is something my wife's been telling me for years. Like, you know, like, you, if you want to love me well, do the dishes. 
you want to love me well, mop the floors. Loving her well and how she needs to feel loved. So anyways, I, I just, you know, husband, screenshot that, I guess. I don't know. Like, just take a picture. But Paul says, husbands, like, you're to fulfill your wife's needs. And wives, you're to do the same to your husbands. But notice the emphasis is on giving here. You are to fulfill. You are to focus on you giving, you fulfilling. And it carries this idea of I owe this to you, not you owe this to me. This is my role as your husband to love you in this way. This is my role as your wife to love you in this way. Not this is your role as my wife to love me in this way. That, that is not what Paul is saying here. David Guzik said, in God's heart, sex is put on a much higher level than merely the husband's privilege and the wife's duty. There's so much more. This is about giving to your spouse, not just simply taking from them. Look at verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over, <clears throat> over his own body, but the wife does. Now, Paul is not saying that you are slaves to each other. We just want to clear, clear that up. But he's saying that the power to truly give fulfillment to your spouse lies with you and you alone. Only you can bring that fulfillment. Listen, your spouse cannot find that fulfillment, that satisfaction within themselves. That's why God sent you. That's why God sent me to them in marriage. Listen, sex within marriage is another aspect where we learn that, that ever important lesson of dying to self. Where we learn the importance of truly serving others for their good, not for our own good. Sex outside of marriage is really the ultimate act of just serving yourself. It's the ultimate description of selfish love. As we saw last week, sex outside of the marriage covenant is a defilement of one's temple and God's ultimate plan for your body. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So it's only within the boundaries of marriage, the marital bed, and, and this relationship that God's design can be truly fulfilled. And so Paul's main point here, he's refuting what they said. Hey, you shouldn't have sex. He's refuting that. He's saying, no, no, no. Married people should have sex. Sex is good. Why? Because God created it to strengthen and to bless the marriage covenant so that we, um, with our spouse, can experience this oneness that God ordained for marriage. But listen, you gotta know, it has to be done his way. It has to be done his way. And again, we see that throughout the whole Bible, that sex is God's idea. It was created by him for the context of marriage and in commitment. And that it's, it's a self-giving love. It's a sacrificial love. And, and when we do that, when we love our spouse in that way, the Bible says it brings glory to the Lord. And isn't that what we learned last week? To glorify, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to bring glory to you. Look at verse five. It says this, stop depriving one another. That word deprive in the Greek actually means to rob or to defraud. And when we deny physical affection and sexual intimacy from our spouse, Paul is saying we cheat them. Depriving a spouse is an issue in many marriages. Mary and I, we really talked through this whole sermon all week long, um, just the text, um, and even late last night, we were up at like midnight just talking through this and like, uh, um, and she was sharing with me and, I, and we were talking about this, that this is an issue in a lot of marriages is that uh, sex becomes a bartering tool to manipulate our spouses to get what we want. And if that, and, and the Bible says that's a sin, Stop doing that, Paul is saying. It's wrong. It's an act of selfishness. And it's not the selfless kind of love that God intends for us to exemplify in our marriages. Listen, if you and I are not loving our spouses um, and adequately caring for them, that Paul is saying we are cheating them of something that they deserve in this covenant. We are robbing them of something that only we can give them. And listen, this has been super convicting for me this week. 
Very convicting. Here's the thing. If we know that what we're doing or haven't done, I should say, even, out of, even out of an innocent heart, you just haven't loved your spouse well, maybe, and how they want to feel loved and, and, are, and are loved. Or maybe you're doing that maybe out of manipulation to control and to get something um, out of your spouse in return. Listen, for you and I, we must repent of that. We must repent. And we have to ask God to help us and to change us. Listen, you don't have the power in yourself to be the right husband, the true husband that you need to be for your wife. You don't possess it. I don't possess it. And listen, women, you don't have the power in and of yourself to be the best wife that God has called you to be. You need the Holy Spirit. Now the question can be asked though in this text, is there ever a place within the marriage relationship for celibacy? That is abstaining from sex, not having sex. And the answer to that is yes. But Paul gives some specific guidelines. Look at verse five. It says, stop depriving one another. He says, accept by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your, la- your lack of self-control. The first reason or purpose in being celibate for a season of marriage, and he says, is that you might give yourselves away more fully to prayer. That is when a couple comes together with a mutual desire to seek the Lord, to draw closer to him. Perhaps they want to hear his voice, a lot like how fasting is. We abstain from something in order just to be more in tune with the spirit. Paul says it's okay in that season. So the reason you would abstain from sex is, number one, for a godly purpose, seeking him in prayer. And secondly, if, 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 he says, if the decision was mutual, it has to be a mutual decision. He says, by agreement. That is where the husband and the wife come together in agreement to fast for a specific amount of time from this area to seek the Lord and to draw closer to him. And then the third thing is that we shouldn't do it for a long period of time. We shouldn't abstain. Why? Paul says, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is saying abstaining from sex in marriage shouldn't be for a long time. He had the wisdom here and the know-how to tell the believers why the sexual relationship is so important in marriage. And one of his main concerns is that temptation towards sin might grow. Now, these, we need to, to remember that these are two believers in Jesus, my wife brought up this point actually last night. These are two believers. They love the Lord. These are faithful people seeking after Jesus. They're not perfect people, but they're trying to honor the Lord with their lives, right? These are the people that are trying to flee sexual immorality. They're trying to honor the Lord with their bodies. Their bodies are not their own. And Paul says here, hey, if, if your abstaining from sex is going on too long and your spouse can't handle that length of time, Paul says, do it. Don't deprive your spouse so that Satan can't get in there and bring temptation. So Paul explains here why the sexual relationship is so important. And then he says in verse 6, But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul is saying that under certain circumstances, it was all right for a married couple to abstain from sex for times of prayer and seeking the Lord. But he says, I don't say that as a command. If you want to seek the Lord, you don't have to abstain. This is just, maybe this is wisdom. Maybe this is an idea for you. This is not a command. This is only if you choose. And now look at verse seven. He goes back to discussing the benefits of being single and celibate. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now that brings up the interesting question for us, is was Paul ever married? Was Paul ever married? Many scholars think that he was for multiple reasons. Number one, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. But then the question is like, well, then what happened to Paul's wife? Like, why don't we ever, you know, hear about her? Why isn't she ever mentioned in Scripture? And the thing that we have to note about this is where Scripture is silent on this, like we have to, like, we can't speak in absolutes, okay? So where Scripture is silent, we, ha- we can't speak in absolutes. But there's two popular theories. One is that Paul is a widower. 
At some point, his wife passed away, died, died um, for whatever reason. Secondly, though, the other is that Paul, Paul's wife divorced him, maybe when he had that radical conversion, and she just wasn't game to like, do this whole Jesus thing. It was very radical for Paul. And maybe she's just like, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm piecing out. But it seems, though, that something happened, either, either death or divorce, and Paul chose to remain single in order to more effectively serve the Lord. And here in verse 7, Paul is saying, I wish, I wish there were more men and women like me. You see, Paul knew, he understood that the harvest, as Jesus said, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. And Paul saw the great need for, for people who, who could fully devote themselves to the Lord's work. And that is something that, that is really impossible for those who are married to fully give of themselves in ministry. You know, Paul will go on later in this chapter um, to speak of the benefits of being single. Look at verse 32, just if you can look down um, in, in chapter 7, verse 32. But I want you to be free from concern, free from any carry saying. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned. He's got to care there about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. So Paul says there's a challenge here. You know, before, before I got married, I got married really young, but before I got married, I didn't have like a, a schedule to keep. I could just, you know, if I wanted to stay out late and like I, I didn't have responsibilities back at home and like my life looked a lot different. But once I got married, like you have obligations and you have responsibilities and you have a wife and a, or a spouse to care for, right? You can't just go hang out with the guys and play video games till 2 a.m. anymore. Do that now while you're single. I mean, don't probably do that too often, but like, you know, enjoy that season now because there's coming a day when you get married that video games need to go away. That being home before midnight like needs to be a thing. Caring for your wife, her needs above your needs. So what Paul is saying though is that singleness provides a unique opportunity to serve the Lord. Now, I think we see a beautiful example in this in Anna in Luke chapter two. Now, some of you, you're like, Anna? There's an Anna in the Bible? Like there's a, in Luke, what? Um, Anna was a prophetess who was a widow. She had only been married for seven years, which probably meant that she was a widow at a very young age. And having gone through um, a tragedy like that, um, that could have embittered her. It could have made her really bitter. But, you know, but the Lord really was working in her where it not only, it didn't make her bitter, it made her better. It made her blessed rather than becoming old and fatigued and frustrated about her, how her life turned out. All those unmet expectations. There was a vitality and a spirituality about her. And she ended up being blessed with an amazing opportunity to see the Messiah. Luke tells us concerning her life, why she was so special. Again, we're told that her, her husband died when... And that she devoted, she gave herself to fasting and prayer night and day in the temple. She didn't give in to the, oh, woe is me. Like, this is, this is my crappy life and I'm just stuck with it. And, and, and there, was, there would be like legitimate hurt there though. Like, I would understand if she was there. And if that's you this morning, like you're like, man, my life has not turned out like my spouse died or whatever. Like, there's legitimate hurt. But she allowed the Lord to meet her in the place of hurt. She didn't turn to worldliness. She didn't go drink her problems away. But she gave herself away wholeheartedly to the Lord. But the second thing is not only that, but it says that she was looking for the Lord. Looking for the Messiah. She was watching and waiting for him to come. And that's a beautiful example. Pastor Josh, he wrote a Christmas song. And, and in it, he, he describes Anna, saw your salvation. And, and some, of, some of the people, they listen to the song, they're like, who, what? This is a beautiful, Luke chapter two, check it out. So Paul and Anna, they're good examples. And Paul says here, I wish that more of you were like this. But there's one very important thing I want you to note in verse 7 is that Paul is indicating that this celibacy, this remaining single in purity is a gift. It's something that the Lord had gifted him in. Now that word for gift is charisma. From charis, you have the first half, charis, which means grace. Ma, which means, indicates the results of something. And so in this case, it's the results of grace. And what is grace? 
God's unmerited favor. And so this gift of remaining single, remaining celibate, is something that God gives to a man or a woman that they themselves couldn't acquire in their flesh. This morning, if you're one of those people and you've remained single and you're doing fine and you're just serving Jesus and you're just like attentive to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and you're just walking in the joy of the Lord, listen, this is a gift of grace to you. I want you to know that. That is not to be taken lightly. God has gifted you in his grace for this task. I think of Jesus. He taught the same in Matthew 19. And we don't have time to turn there, but he's talking about the eunuchs. He says, some are called, some are gifted. Some don't have that, that drive or don't have it anymore so that they can just focus all the more on the Lord. But Paul's main point, though, again, is that celibacy is a gift, but not everyone is gifted. You ever seen someone try to operate in gifts that they don't have? It's, it's a train wreck. Verse 8, but I, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I want you to notice these, these few words here. It says the unmarried and the widows. The two categories of single people that are mentioned here in verse 7. But there's a third category of single people that Paul's going to mention in verse 25. He mentions virgins. And understanding the distinction in regard to these three groups is essential. He says the virgins, that's a pretty easy group to identify, clearly refers to a single person who's never been married. Virgin, single person, never married. Widows, single people who were formerly married, who became single by the death of their spouse. But then there's this third category. It says to the unmarried. Who are they? Well, this term, unmarried, is used only four times in the New Testament. You know where they're found? In this chapter. <laughs> it's the only time. So this, again, this is, so this is the only place to look. And in verse 32, he uses it again. And that doesn't really give us much clarity or indication on a specific meeting. It just kind of generalizes a person who isn't married. But in verse 34, it uses it a little more definitively. When Paul refers to the woman who is married and the virgin. Now, Paul seems uh, to have two distinct groups in mind here. First, you have the unmarried, and then you have the virgin. So those who are unmarried are not virgins. And then in verse 8, he speaks of the unmarried and the widow. So um, we can conclude that the unmarried are not widows. The clearest insight as to who they are comes to, um, to us in the term used in verse 10 and 11 when it says, the wife should not leave her husband. We'll look at this next week. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. So the term unmarried here indicates that those who were previously married but are not widows, they're not virgins, but they're single now. So I believe it's safe to say, safe to conclude from this section of Scripture that the unmarried group are those who have been divorced for whatever reason. And so Paul is speaking to people who were divorced, before, like coming to Christ. Uh, they want to know, is it okay to remarry? We're going to look at that <clears throat> a lot next week when we're talking about divorce and remarriage. But his word to them is that it is a good thing for you who are free now of marriage to remain single. It's a good thing. Or in his words, <clears throat> it's good to remain even as I. <clears throat> but, he says, if you can't handle the pressure of sexual temptation, Paul says it would be better for you to marry again than to burn with passion. Maybe your translation says burn with lust. Now let me say this. This verse, verse 9, to me is one of the most often misquoted and mis like taken out of context verses in all of the Bible. This verse, again, is not speaking um, of that if you're having, you know, problems in your life saying sexually pure than just get married. Oh, it's better to, to get married than to burn, right? So I'm going to get married because I can't, I can't control myself sexually. That is not what Paul is saying here, and I think for several reasons. Number one, it is a clear contradiction of what the rest of scriptures teach. For, I think of 1 Thessalonians, we read it last week, I'm gonna read it again this week. Uh, verse three, Paul wrote, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So here Paul is saying that God has called you, called me to live a holy and set apart life, abstaining from sexual immorality, whether you're married or single. He's called all of us to. And he's saying that each person is to exercise self-control from sexual immorality, that you need to do whatever it takes to remain pure. The responsibility is on you. Paul is saying that you need to know how to rightly possess, rightly control your body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions, not like the world, not like the Gentiles. So that's the first reason. It's a contradiction of scripture. Secondly, another reason why that interpretation is wrong is that although sex is important and good, it's not the focus. It's not the focus within marriage. And for those getting married just for sexual pleasure, you are making sex the focus. You're making it the thing. Okay, this is why I need to get married, and that's wrong. If the only reason you really want to get married is for sex because you've got raging hormones, let me say that. That's lust, not love. Sex is a byproduct of a loving marriage, not the goal of it. And marriage is to, again, is to resemble Christ's love for the church. And how did he love us? He gave himself. He sacrificed himself. He denied himself. Thirdly, the third reason that it's clearly not what Paul meant is that the context. You got to view this in context of what he's saying because he's speaking to those who are divorced and saying it would be better. And you can even include widows. For you just to remain like me, to serve the Lord. But he does say, but if you cannot do that, if that is just too hard, you don't have that gift, then by all means start praying for a spouse. Start praying that God would bring that perfect spouse for you. Because he says it would be better for you to marry than to burn with passion. That's the heart, not the goal. This morning as we close, I want to just say a couple things. And I, I was really just praying. Because I'm not perfect in this area of, of, of in marriage, I just feel, guys, really inadequate to, to speak even to you. And like, Lord, what, what is it that you would want me to, to communicate to us this morning? Like, what's the takeaway? What's the, what's your heart? And all I can just be reminded about is, and just, I feel like the Lord just put on my heart, it was for me. And it was very simple. You know what it is? Ryan, love your wife. (laughs) But know what that means to love. When I said I was a, sl- a slow learner, <laughs> very slow learner, it's been hard for me over the years just to admit my selfishness as a husband. I always love to blame others for when something goes wrong. It's a gift. No, it's not a gift. It's sin nature. <laughs> but I've, come to the, I've just come to the realization, look, I'm a selfish, selfish person. Mary and I were joking this, this week. I hate sci-fi movies. I'm just going to be honest. My wife loves them. My wife loves every genre of movie. movie. I hate them. I'm, like, I'm a rom-com kind of guy. I like action or whatever. Like, that's, that's fine. Those are two different areas, by the way. I don't want to... Yeah, anyways. <laughs> that came out wrong. Um, but anyways, Mary's begged me over the years. Let's go watch this movie in theaters. Let's go see it. I really want to see this movie. I really want to see this movie. And I'm just like... <laughs> Can we watch it when it comes out? You know, like, and the Lord really convicted me to speak because there's a movie coming out. I'm not even going to mention it. And it was like this sci-fi movie, if you were to call it. And again, that's not me. And Mary's like, she just stopped asking. She's just like, I'm going to go find a friend uh, to go do this, to go watch this movie with. And man, the Lord really convicted me. I was going to let her too. I was like, yeah, you should go do that. You need, <laughs> you need girl time. <laughs> but the Lord really convicted me. I was like, Ryan, you're selfish. 
And then I came to the, the, the other conclusion, again, slow learner. I'm like, what's the worst thing? I'm going to sit in an air-conditioned movie theater eating popcorn and drinking a soda for two hours, like resting? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is that the worst thing? That can, anyways, I wanted to watch it. I didn't fall asleep. That was good. But the Lord really convicted me. The Lord really convicted me in that. It's like, Brian, you're selfish. So the first takeaway, I just encourage you, for those that are married, love your spouse. How Christ loved you. Remember that. Remember the gospel. Remember how much Jesus loves you. To lay down your life for your spouse. That's your desires. That's your, that's your you know, wants and hopes and dreams and preferences when it comes to the movies. Lay them down. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for you. Lay down your pride. Sacrifice for your spouse. Again, listen, this is all in response to to what Jesus has done for you. This morning, if you're single, you find yourself, maybe you're one of those that are gifted in singleness, I want to remind you that you've been gifted with grace. That's a beautiful thing. Serve the Lord fully with your life. Don't take it lightly. Dedicate your life to serving him. Resemble Anna. But if you are single this morning, you desire to get married, again, I'm going to come back to a very simple word, pray. Let us come alongside you in prayer. Let us walk with you in this. But in the meantime, while you're waiting, while you're praying, while you're seeking, serve. Serve the Lord with gladness. Enjoy this season. Don't rush this season. Know that this is a season of preparation in your life. He's preparing you for who he's wanting you to be. And the best way for you to find that right person to marry is to make sure that you're that right person for them to marry. Keep yourselves holy and pure. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.